Yes. I need I think you need to stand up. Okay, welcome. Good to see you again. Please turn with me to the book of First Peter. We're in chapter two. And we're going to look in this session at chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. Okay, it's hot, isn't it? Ah, oh, don't know how you cope with this humidity. All right, Englishmen melt in conditions like this. All right, okay, let's pray, shall we? And then we'll hear the word of our Lord to us. Merciful God, we thank you for this word your scriptures, which your spirit inspired and which are here to conform us to the likeness of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that that will be our experience now as we have the word of Christ open in front of us, the word of the ambassador of Christ, our forefather in the faith, the Apostle Peter. Please would you help us to wrestle with what he's saying, to see its significance for our lives and to be transformed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, that's God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you, not, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So reads the word of God. I'd like to tell you about a young man at Emmanuel in London. Um, I hope, actually, to have the chance to introduce some of you to him. If you ever want to visit London, whatever you do, don't pay at our hotel prices. They're as high as your temperatures. Um, and I, I should say, I'm not breaking any confidences here in what I say to you. Um, everything I'm going to tell you is either public knowledge or Luke himself. Oh, that's his name. Luke has uh, told people about it. And I'd like you to pray for him. His name's Luke. If there are 150 young men and women his own kind of age across the pond praying for him, that would do him the power of good. And the reason I want to tell you about him is because his experience is relevant to what I want to talk to you about in this next few minutes today. I first met Luke about three years ago. I was in a coffee shop in my part of London, in North London. I was working. I do a couple of days, maybe a morning and an afternoon, um, uh, in coffee shops, just working there with my Bible on the desk because we don't have a church building and I want to be kind of in the community so people can at least see that there's a pastor around or somebody with a Bible. So I was working there, and uh, the thing happened that I want to happen. This young man, Luke, uh, just started talking to me, asking me questions. What are you doing? Who are you? And so on. And I said, well, I'm a minister. I work at the church, and I've got my Bible. and doing my sermon prep. And he, he said, I want to study the Bible. Can we study the Bible together? I want to come to church. Can I come to your church? I'm like, yeah, amen. And I, said, I suddenly looked at him, and I said, we were talking for a few minutes, and and I said, um, Luke, can you tell me how old are you? And Luke said, I'm 16. And I said, OK, well, listen, um, I want to respect your parents. And actually, in, in England, there are, there are legal restrictions on 
uh, potential legal restrictions on uh, evangelizing and doing anything, actually, with an under, six, under 18 without their parents' consent. And I want to respect the parents anyway. So I said, well, listen, here's, here's the deal. If you have your parents' permission to come to church, if you ask your parents' permission for, to come to Bible study, then you can come. Otherwise, we need to wait till you're, you're 18. And, um, and he sort of, his face fell. And... Anyway, so next Sunday, there he is at church. Because <laughs> you actually can't stop somebody coming in the building, you know. And I said, hey, I saw him after the service. I said, hey, Luke, great to see you. So what did your parents said yes. And he sort of said, well, um, well, no. Um, and gradually, more of Luke's story emerged. Uh, Luke was raised as a Mormon. He has several siblings. And he doesn't have a great relationship with his dad. And there are various other things in his family which made life difficult for him there. So while he left Mormonism, he could see that that was a kind of shallow and empty kind of non-faith, really, and he left his parents. Uh, Luke was living at the age of 16 in uh, what we call sheltered housing, which means it's it kind of independent, but there's somebody keeping an eye on you, uh, provided by our government. And his life, frankly, was pretty chaotic. He's at school, but he's in a fairly rough situation uh, socially. A lot of his friends are doing drugs, that kind of thing. He's very confused. He's in an unstable sort of situation. Very bright, very articulate, uh, lovely young man. Um, anyway, and, and so that's basically how I got to know him, and that was three years ago. And over the, the next two or three years, we kept in touch. He came to church a few times, not that often. Um, it's kind of hard for somebody whose life is in chaos to get themselves together in time to get to church on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. But anyway, he, he kept in touch. Actually, he came around for dinner more than he came to church. <laughs> it's funny. Um, there was another family in the church, really, who did most of that kind of hard yards on that score. Uh, my fellow elder, Steve Hayhow, and his wife, wonderful gift of hospitality. And every Saturday, they have like a dozen people around for dinner. And Luke used to go around to their place for dinner. Um, he was uh, befriended in a big way by uh, the Hayhow's oldest two or three boys, um, Joel and Jesse and Ollie. Um, and there he is. And, and so this kind of bumbles on, and he's come to our place a few times, and he'll come to church, and then we don't see him for six months. Then I see him in Southgate. And, and, and then two weeks ago, I got a Facebook message from him. Two weeks ago, literally two weeks. And he's in the coffee shop. He says, I'm in the coffee shop. Are you free for a chat? I'm sitting at my desk trying to prepare for Summer Sanctus, looking at my watch, thinking, yes. <laughs> so, so I, now he's now 19 years old. So I show up at the coffee shop. And um, he said, I've decided I want to be a Christian. I'm serious, I really want to be a Christian. When can I be baptized? And he's like, I really want to be baptized. You're going to baptize me. Can you baptize me on Sunday? <laughs> like, just, it's okay, of course we're going to baptize you. It's okay. But um, listen, I, I, relax, okay? Relax, it's okay. Jesus ain't coming back that soon. Um, seriously. Um, I want to make sure, Luke, that you've got a clear picture of what you're getting into. You know, Jesus told the parable about the tower. It's a, it's a foolish man who goes, sets out to build a tower without knowing you know, the cost and how he's going to go about doing it. But he's adamant, you've got to baptize me. I say, yeah, Luke, we'll baptize you. You can come to church. But I want you to know what it means to be a Christian. I need to, I need to put the basics in place for you, because otherwise you can't stand up there and, and make your baptismal vows when you don't know what they mean. So we talked a little bit, and he said, I'm going to come to church on Sunday. Then he messaged me afterwards and said, oh, I can't come to church on Sunday. I just remembered, life's chaotic, yeah? Um, because I'm going with my friend to his church on Sunday. It's like for three years, can't get him to church, and then two come along at once. It's like, what do you do with that? Anyway, so he went to his friend's church on Sunday. Um, and uh, then last Thursday, I gave him his Bible. I gave him a Bible. So he doesn't have to have that one with the Book of Mormon stitched into the back of it, which won't do him any good. Uh, and when I get back, so I left on Friday, so I gave him the Bible and then had to go home to pack. And when I get back, if somebody else hasn't started, uh, I'm going to start a little kind of discipleship program with Luke. 19-year-old Luke wants to be a Christian. Okay, and I've, 
What I want to set before him is what I want to set before you today. I want you to, so to speak, walk with Luke through his discipleship training program. I'm going to set before Luke three vital priorities. And I want you to know what they are, because partly it's pure self-interest. I want you to be praying for this young man. So you, I want you to be praying, as you, you know, you're making notes here assiduously, remembering things or writing things down. Please, when you look back at these notes, promise me you'll pray for Luke. Would you do that? When you pray for yourself in relation to these things. And the three things I want to say to him, which are the three things I want to say to you, are highlighted here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. Very simply, they are, number one, worship God. Number two, grow in godliness. Number three, witness to the world. Worship God, grow in godliness, witness to the world. Let me show you these just briefly, and then we'll look in more detail at them. Verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. To proclaim the excellencies or declare the praises of God has to do with worshipping God. Then second, growing godliness. You've got that right there in verse 11. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And witness to the world in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the nations, better than Gentiles probably, keep your conduct among the nations honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. You witness to the world in how you live, how you act. So you're kind of a walking advertisement for the transforming power of the grace of Christ. You're a blind, dead, deaf sinner who has been healed and given food so that you can share it with other people and people can see that in you. Worship God, grow in godliness, witness to the world. And I have to tell you, every Christian needs these three things, okay? This, this is not a complex talk. This is a simple talk. This is foundations, it's basics, but whether you're at home all day studying hard, whether you're out working, whether you're a pastor who's been a Christian for 50 years, longer than I've been alive, or whether you've been a Christian for just 12, 13 years, or whether you've actually, you know, only really felt that your faith has come alive in the last six months or so, or the last few days or so, every Christian needs these priorities. Worship God, growing godliness, witness to the world. Let's just look at these one at a time and try and explore why they're so significant. Look with me first. Verse 9. You're a chosen race, chosen by God, precious to him, a royal priesthood. Uh, royal because you're like Jesus, who is a king. Priesthood because you're like Jesus, who is a priest, who has access to the throne room of God, to come to him in prayer. You're chosen by God for this privilege of filling and subduing and ruling over all creation as kings and entering his presence and drawing near to him in worship as priests. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, a people belonging to God, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. You are the people who are called to proclaim that God has switched the lights on. In some contexts, this kind of language has to do with proclaiming the gospel to other people. Proclaim the excellences of him who called you. And I mentioned that yesterday in connection with this text. However, I'm persuaded that in this particular instance, the main focus is actually on proclaiming the excellences of God to God. What God wants is the world to be filled with men and women who look up to him and praise him for his grace and his goodness in giving them life and breath and everything else. Uh, that comes from Isaiah 43. There's no need to turn to this if you don't want to, but if you want to chase up a cross-reference, the, the most obvious place where this little phrase, proclaim the excellences 
of him who called you is found elsewhere in Scripture. Is in Isaiah, 50, Isaiah 43, where the prophet is speaking of the people of Israel who um, uh, he promises to renew and to bless them. Um, he says, I will give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, and drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. God made these people for himself so that they would declare his praise. But who too? Well, who there to declare God's praises to is highlighted in the next verse, verse 22. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob. That's what he says. So just, it's a slightly complex, but the point is in Isaiah, they didn't declare God's praise because they didn't call upon him, which means to declare his praise would be to call upon him. You see what I'm saying? So when Peter quotes this, it seems to me most likely what he's saying to people like you, people like me, is that you have been chosen by God, picked by God, purified by God, sanctified by God, because you are to do this most significant thing, stand before the living God and praise and honour and thank him for his immense, infinite, bountiful goodness to you. To worship God is the first and most significant priority. Hands up if you've ever come across the Athanasian Creed. You know the Athanasian Creed? It's a bit long. Um, and it probably wasn't written by Athanasius, but still, it's good. It probably dates from the um, 5th century, 4th century. The, the Catholic faith, that is, the universal Christian faith, this is how it begins. The universal Christian faith, which we all confess, is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Very intriguing. At the heart of the Christian faith is not that we believe X, Y, Z, but that we worship him. It's not that belief doesn't matter, but the heart of your faith, right at the heart of who you are as a Christian believer, you are a man, a woman, who worships the triune God. We're called to worship God. Now, this is a topic which we could explore in a lot of detail. And what I want to do is just, I want to highlight one aspect of it which is significant. And, and the reason it's significant in this context is because it connects the idea of worshipping God with the other activities in our lives. So listen up. This is, some of you will have come across this before, but for others it might be somewhat new. The Bible says that we exist in three sets of relationships. We have a relationship with God. We have relationships within the body of Christ, the church. And then we have relationships outside the church. Yes? And then it says that the things that happen in our relationship with God ripple outwards into our relationships in the church and from there into the world. Relationship with God, relationship with the church, relationship with the world. So let's suppose, for, for the sake of argument, that you wanted to uh, reach the world with the gospel. Well, the first thing you'd have to get sorted out is your relationship with God. If you're not worshipping God in, an honoring, in a way that is honoring to God, in a faithful way, in a diligent way, in a committed and heartfelt way, if you're just going through the motions or not going through them at all, then your relationship with God isn't right, your relationship with your brothers and sisters isn't going to be right. Forget about reaching the world. And you see this. Um, uh, this is where some of it will be familiar to you. Um, if I want to confuse theological students, sometimes I ask them, okay, how many falls are there in the early chapters of Genesis? And they always say, like, well, one. It's like, no. There are three falls in the early chapters of Genesis. Three great sins. Genesis chapter 3, rebellion against God, disobeying the divine command, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Fall number one. Fall number two, the sin against the brother. 
The sin against the member of your own family, where Cain kills his brother Abel. The relationship with God goes wrong in Genesis chapter 3. The relationship within the family, within the community of the people of God goes wrong in Genesis chapter 4. So guess what happens in Genesis chapter 6? The sons of God and the daughters of men. You have there a relationship with the world going wrong. Yes? Makes sense? You get the same thing, in, um, but backwards in um, Psalm 67. Um, Shine the light of your face upon us, O God. Relationship with God. That your ways may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Yes? So... If, you, if you're following the logic of Psalm 67, how do you make the saving power of God known in the world? Well, you need to get your relationship with the living God right. The Lord's face to shine upon you as you gather for worship, worship in his presence so that your relationships in the church are renewed so that people in the world see that and are transformed. Make sense? God, people of God, the world. Now, that much I suspect will be familiar, especially to some of the guys who've done some reading on this topic. But think about how this works practically. It's really intriguing. Why is it the case that what you do in worship impacts your relationships within the church, which then impacts your relationships with the world? I think the reason is that worship is designed to be life in miniature. The way we worship God is supposed to be like a little tiny version of the way we live our lives. So if we learn how to worship in the right way, suddenly we'll, if we can then apply those lessons to our relationships in the church and our relationships in the world, it will transform how we relate to each other. Good grief. What was that? The, oh, only a wasp. Eh? No, your wasp. You know the difference between English wasps and, and American wasps? Like, English wasps sting you. Okay? American wasps pick you up and carry you off someplace else to eat you alive. It's, what is that thing? How does it get off the ground? That must break the laws of physics, doesn't it? There's a pterodactyl. It looks like a bat. All right. Now, what was I talking about? This wretched thing. I want to come armed next time with like some. Inter- All right. Now, so here's the, here's the thing. So, what happens when you when you get when you worship God? Or, well, for, first thing, you you acknowledge that it's God who's brought you there. So your minister stands up and calls you to worship Him, which is. Now, if you reflect that in the whole of your life, it's like the first thing that you do every day, that, or right at the heart of every moment of your existence, is a recognition that God has called you here, God has put you here. Before you do anything, here we go again, we, um, uh, hear and acknowledge that God has put you where you are. And then what's the very next major element of the service? Right? The first thing is this, isn't it? It's a gesture of humility and confession of your sins, before God, and then what happens is you stand up and you're immediately, the relationship that you've confessed, you've messed up this relationship, the relationship is restored. And then you have like Bible, 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 sermon, prayer, lots of you talking to God and God talking to you, and then you eat and you have fellowship with God, and then God, the minister, will commission you send you out into the world. Now, just imagine if you lived your life like that. Imagine what would happen if you lived your life like that in relationships in the church, where before you do anything, before you say anything, the first thing you do is acknowledge that Everything I have is a gift of God. And then when you get to church, you're conscious of what's the next thing that comes after the call to worship? Confession of sins. So you're sitting in the car on the way to church thinking, what are we going to do today? What you should be thinking in the car on the way to church is, you know, is it, are there any relationships between me and somebody at church that actually I've, I've done, I've said something, and that, that wasn't the right thing to do? That wasn't the, I need to go before, if I get there on time, which I should do, Please get to church on time. It drives me nuts, you know. 
First time we have a non-Christian show up at Emmanuel for three months and she arrives ten minutes early. There are four people there. Ring her necks, anyway. Right? And they all show up five past ten. I'm like, we're in the middle of singing the first hymn. What are you doing? Anyway, okay. get to church on time. But, but you get there so that, you know, if there's a little old lady who, you know, you, you pushed in front of her in the queue for fellowship lunch three weeks ago, or, or there's somebody that, you know, you've been, whatever it is that is in the way of your relationship, you reflect in your relationship with them what you've learned in the church, in the, this worship of God. I'm really sorry. I, I, I said a few things last week. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. And then you try.